this is Jessica Stewart, and you're listening to the My Modern Met Top Artist Podcast. While we wait for season two to start next week, we have a very special episode in collaboration with the Art Curious Podcast. Art Curious is a bi-weekly show exposing the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. Created and hosted by Jennifer Dossel, who is a curator of modern and contemporary art at the North Carolina Museum of Art, it's made many best of podcast lists since it began in 2016. Over on My Modern Met, we love talking about art history and so jumped at the chance to collaborate with Jennifer because she really shows just how vibrant and lively the history of art is. From diving into pieces of art that shock, to our current season which talks about cursed art, the podcast proves that that life is stranger than fiction when it comes to the art world. For today's show, we're joining forces to talk about art history moments that have made an impact in celebration of our upcoming season two, which will see us sitting down with contemporary artists who are making an impact with their art. Over the course of the episode, we'll look at four significant moments, and then on August 9th, the discussion will continue over on Art Curious, where we'll tackle four more together. So after you listen to the show, make sure you go over and subscribe to Art Curious. Let's dive in. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? We're super excited about this crossover with Top Artist and Art Curious. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for collaborating with me. Yeah. As an art historian, I really love your podcast and how it shows people just how interesting history can be. So before we get started with our chat, can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to start Art Curious? Yes. So I am, by trade, during the day, I am an art curator. I focus on modern and contemporary art. And I typically meet a bunch of people just in my daily travels who tell me that they are either such huge fans of the museum, they love art, they're there all the time, or I meet people who say, you know, oh, I'm only here at the museum today because I heard they have a really good hamburger or, you know, like my mom made me come, that kind of thing. (laughs) I know those are kind of ridiculous impressions, but I don't meet a lot of people who seem to fall in the middle. So I always thought, well, I understand your frustration that you think art is a little bit boring because I used to feel the exact same way before I got introduced to the world of art history. For me, I really decided that getting into art with a really good story was what was most intriguing to me. And so I tell people, you know, sometimes if it feels boring to you or you don't get it, sometimes just finding a way to learn more about it in the form of a story might help. And that's really why I started doing Art Curious about five years ago. Well, it's incredible. And you have so much great material on on your podcast. What can listeners expect when tuning in and how do they find you? Sure. So artcuriouspodcast.com is my website and people can stream episodes directly there or they can find episodes wherever you listen to these kind of shows. So Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, all the all the great places. And typically what I do is every season of my podcast really revolves around a theme, except for the first year, which was kind of haphazard, I suppose you could say. But I'm trying to tell stories that I like to call the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. So coming at it from sometimes a weird point of view, where I'm telling you something that I'm hoping you probably haven't heard in an art history class, or that even for people who love art, it'll be something new to them that they might not know about a particular work or a particular artist. Well, it's really interesting that when we started brainstorming ideas, it was pretty easy to agree on a lot of things to talk about. So 
Season two of the Top Artist Podcast is all about artists who are making an impact now. So we're going to dive in and unravel some great artists and art moments in history that have made an impact. And of course, the list we made went on and on and on, (laughs) (laughs) more than we'll be able to cover in in this episode and the episode that everyone needs to go in and tune in to Art Curious to hear about the rest of. Um, But I'm super excited to talk to you about these great moments. Me too. Let's do it. Let's do it. So first one, you know, since the Top Artist Podcast covers contemporary art, I thought it would be nice to cover, for the most part, more modern art. And to start, let's talk about one artist who used his work to make a big change in society. And I'm talking about an American photographer and sociologist, Lewis Hine. So for Hine, the camera wasn't just a way to create fine art, but it was a tool to enact change, which I think is a really incredible thing that he seemed to acknowledge at a very early time, because we're really talking about the early 1900s, what a powerful instrument he had on his hands. Hein actually studied sociology, and later he taught at the Ethical Culture School in New York City. He actually even got his students to engage in projects with photography as a means to an educational tool. So, for instance, they would go and photograph immigrants coming in through Ellis Island as a way to connect with their own roots. But his biggest work came when he became the photographer for the National Child Labor Committee in 1908. And so, while his portfolio includes lots of pictures of New York tenements, uh, immigrants arriving at Ellis Island, and later on, famous photos of workers building the Empire State Building, these factory photos were really the ones that made the most impact. So, Jennifer, why don't you share with us a little bit about why these photographs were so important and how they helped make change. I am so happy to do so. I really love Lewis Hine's work. So um, when I was thinking about talking about Lewis Hine, the first thing that comes to mind is that we've got to set the scene a little bit, bring him and his career into focus a little bit more. So it's a little bit of a deep dive, but we are looking specifically at America post-Civil War, post-Reconstruction, and thinking about the Industrial Revolution. Because all of a sudden, you have access to all these new inventions that are supposed to make everything easier and life simpler for everybody. Um, So, and also new mechanizations. So now you have different and faster ways to make new and faster, different products of all kinds. So this was really this boom that was across all different fields from farming and fishing to providing um, food in cans, you know, for one of the first times in really modern history to textiles and everything like that. So this was really supposed to revolutionize. I I think in some ways it has this wonderful parallel to how we look at computers and robotics today where this was really supposed to help us spend less time working, but it actually did the opposite. So thinking about the great capitalist system, how people realized, employers, especially managers, uh, these big industrial types, really realized that they could have more workers working longer hours and for less pay, and they would have a bigger profit because they would be creating more inventory. So wages were low and supply and demand was so skewed that parents essentially could not end up making ends meet for their families by working on their own. And so kids started really joining the workforce in huge numbers. And this got to be a huge issue. It ballooned up to over 2 million kids working full long hour days by 1910. 
So businesses really like to hire kids, especially for a bunch of different reasons. The first was that, you know, they were so small, so little hands could use little tools really well. And then they could also be paid far less than an adult and also be in some ways less pushy about rights and uh, their educations and so forth. So this was really the way things were going. And at the turn of the century was when uh, society, a lot of people in society, especially Uh, progressive reformists started thinking and pushing back against this because the conditions that these kids were working in were really horrible. You know, they were dealing with working from very, very young ages. So we're talking people starting at five years old, six years old. Sometimes they would experience developmental difficulties because they would be stooped over and bent in these odd positions so they wouldn't properly grow. They have these curvatures of their spines working in places like coal mines and, um, again, canneries and so forth. So it really was extremely harsh conditions that they were working under. And they weren't working for just a couple hours here and there. They were working for usually upwards of 12 hours a day and sometimes in very, very dangerous situations. And Hein was familiar with this because he actually worked in a factory when he was 18 himself. And it was a big risk for him to go in and do the work that he did. He actually would put himself into disguises and sneak in because obviously big business does not want someone poking around and letting you know the the horrible conditions that these children are facing, like you said. No, for sure. And I think that's something that's so interesting about Lewis Hine was exactly what you're saying. He had to be super careful because if somebody realized what he was trying to do, which is really document the horrors that kids were experiencing on a daily basis, he would be thrown out. His whole project could really be ruined in so many ways. And what he would do is he would not only come in and take these pictures, he would also make sure that he was taking really, really meticulous notes about everything. So he would document how old the child was, what their names were, how how long they'd been working for, their daily tasks at the jobs, and so forth. And so he wanted to be sure that he was as accurate as possible because he wanted people to understand there was no posing going on in these images. There was no retouching. There was no editing even after the fact. So he wanted this to be as truthful as possible. And the way that he did this was that he had to be really secretive about the way he would take notes. And he would keep, I, I don't even know how you do this, but he kept a notebook in his pocket. And with one hand, he would just gently put his hand in his pocket and scrawl notes without even looking. So Heinz photographs, they really helped the NCLC's lobbying efforts. And in 1912, the Children's Bureau was created that eventually in 1938, unfortunately, it took quite a long time, the Fair Labor Standards Act brought an end to child labor in the United States. Sort of shocking when you, 1938, not that long ago. Exactly. No, it's it's amazing. He really helped to shine a light on something so important. And I know you're a mom, just like me. His images are heartbreaking. It doesn't matter how far along we've come as a society. You look at these pictures and they just completely break your heart. They are incredible to see these kids who were so little being asked to do so much and so long and so terribly too. So thank goodness for this, at least, that this change was able to be made and he helped make it happen. Yeah, I mean, thanks to people like him who were willing to take risks and stick their necks out there that change can be enacted. 
And that sort of takes us into our next moment of art history impact, where we're going to touch on a landmark piece of art dealing with civil rights. The next piece we're going to talk about is The Problem We All Live With. It's a 1964 painting by Norman Rockwell, of all people. So most people think of Norman Rockwell, the American painter, for his depictions of American life in the Saturday Evening Post. You know, I don't want to say cheesy, but very apple pie, very picture-perfect depictions of everyday life. (laughs) Interestingly, Rockwell, later on in his career, he really sort of had a change of heart and wanted to do more politically meaningful work, which is why he actually ended his contract with the Saturday Evening Post, because they weren't open to this. So he found a home at Look, which was a biweekly publication that was the direct competitor of Life. And that is where the problem we all live with comes into creation. It's part of a series of work he did about racism. Uh, The oil painting shows Six-year-old African-American girl Ruby Bridges on her way to an all-white elementary school. We're talking about a time when Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954 was a landmark decision to desegregate schools. But the reality was most of America still had segregated schools. So he's depicting this moment when Ruby Bridges was selected to be a child to help with a desegregation project in New Orleans in 1960. And on the first day of school, she was the only African-American student to show up escorted by, by four marshals. You know, in Rockwell's painting, we see her being escorted by them, a racial slur very clearly marked on the wall behind her and a tomatoes thrown at the wall. You know, he sort of put us as the viewer in the position of the angry mob outside the school where this brave little girl is just trying to go get her education. And it's a remarkable piece of art from an artist that people don't typically associate with political activism. Jennifer, what made you think about this as a moment of art historical impact? I really love this story um, so much so that I actually wrote a chapter about Norman Rockwell's civil rights paintings in my book, Art Curious, that came out last year, because I am completely with you. I grew up looking at images from the Saturday Evening Post with my grandfather, and we loved just laughing at Norman Rockwell images. And I agree with you. I think cheesy is one of the words that's so apropos in many ways. But I have this sentimental spot in my heart for his works just because I grew up with them. But seeing images like this, they are really stark in comparison because you don't expect it. And the fact that the N-word is right there in the middle of the painting, and it doesn't matter if you were looking at it in 1968 or if you're looking at it now, it still stops you and it sort of takes the air out of the room because you don't expect to see it like that in a work of art, but especially you don't expect to see it in a Norman Rockwell painting. I like to think of this image as kind of a bridge between earlier Rockwell and this very late phase Rockwell, because in some ways this is still that quintessential Rockwell scene and that you have Ruby Bridges looking so innocent and sweet and beautiful. She's wearing this little pristine white gown and shined shoes, and we are definitely on her level. So it feels very Rockwellian and that it's this innocent childhood image, but everything that surrounds it is just the opposite of that. Talking about those tomatoes that have been thrown at her that she mentioned, we don't even get to see the marshals except their legs. It's just our focus is completely drawn in purposefully on Ruby Bridges, and it just stops you. It's an amazing image. And then it's also amazing to know that this was something that Rockwell 
wouldn't have done or really would not have been able to do, as you mentioned earlier when he was working for the Saturday Evening Post, because they specifically said that there should not be any representation of anybody of color unless they were in a subservient position. So that's why in a couple of cases, you'll see, you know, black waiters or uh, people working on trains. There's a really famous image of a black waitstaff person on a train that's a, a kind of an endearing person. But it was an actual thing that was asked of him, was only to really show white America in many ways. And that did not sit well with Norman Rockwell. And his third wife was very progressive. And so I think she really urged him to take this big step. So, you know, I've got to recommend this to so many people because Norman Rockwell was being kind of ballsy here. He was really breaking with how we know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is different from any Norman Rockwell that came before. So it's really shocking and kind of awesome that he did this. Oh, yeah, and he received a lot of hate a lot of hate mail for the piece, people telling him he betrayed the white race. Um, I mean, he really put that issue of segregation in the homes of white Americans who maybe were trying not to face reality of what was happening. So kudos to, to him, kudos to the publication for, for taking that stance as well. This was his first commission for Look Magazine. So he really kind of went in there with a bang. <laughs> I mean, he said later on in his life when he was 75 in an interview, for 47 years, I portrayed the best of all possible worlds. Grandfathers, puppy dogs, things like that. That kind of stuff is dead now. And I think it's about time. So, you know, I think, as you said, he later on in life really thought about the impact his art could have on the world and how he wanted to use his artistic voice. We're going to kind of switch gears. We've talked about our first two artists made an impact by spotlighting social justice issues, but our next two artists made a big mark on history just by being themselves and not being afraid to take risks. So when you think of the word impact in art history, you can't not think of Pablo Picasso as one of the artists that makes that list. Totally. We could do a whole episode just talking about different impacts that Picasso had on art history. But when we were looking to hone it down to one moment, there was a particular Picasso painting that came to mind. Painted in 1907, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon actually shows five nude prostitutes from a brothel in Barcelona. He actually never publicly exhibited it until 1916 and even changed the title from Les Bordels d'Avignon, meaning the brothel of Avignon, to Les Demoiselles to try and downplay the shock value. I don't know how much that actually worked. Um, <laughs> the painting actually acts as a bridge between Picasso's African period and Cubism. It's actually the great foreshadowing of Cubism that has made it one of his most seminal paintings and probably one of the most important paintings in all of art history. Totally. I Whenever I think of this work, I think about if you don't know much about art history, or even if you do, seeing this either in person, if you're at the you know, if you're at MoMA in New York, the Museum of Modern Art, or even if you're just looking it up on Google Images, I think it's really hard for us to remember or to understand just how controversial this painting was, not only in that it's showing these prostitutes from a brothel, right. but also just in the way it looks, because it's really difficult for us to find and make sense of what's going on from a perspectival point of view. The women's faces look very blank. Everything is kind of unclear and geometric. Its shape is wonky. 
dimension is wonky and they're all pointy and there's nothing naturalistic about this work of art. So it was really quite shocking to so many people because it was hard to understand how this happened in comparison to what came before, which was a lot more, for the most part, classically trained and classically inspired. Uh, Even though there had been this move toward abstraction and towards what would eventually become complete and total abstraction later on in the century, this still felt like a bridge too far. And I think you really hit the nail on the head when you're talking about the fact that about 10 years almost passes between him really working on the brunt of the painting and before actually showing it in public. And part of that is because it was just nobody liked it. It did not go over well. Even when Picasso would show it to some of his closest friends, many of whom were artists. Like there's this famous story that when Henri Matisse came in, he hated it. And he specifically sort of was like, is this a joke? Are you trying to razz me? Because he thought it was so awful. And the same thing went for George Brock, who would eventually go on, you know, with Picasso to really be one of the dads of Cubism. He basically walked out of the room because he thought this was horrible. So it wasn't one of those issues where you're like, oh, you know, the general public just doesn't understand. This was something that even artists who were really engaged in the same kind of environment and topics, they didn't get it either. It it was really shocking. Well, it just goes to show how progressive Picasso was. And like you said, it's hard for us to imagine what the taste was at the time and that something like this was just visually unfathomable. I mean, you're, you're coming from a very, very classical place and there's not much break with that. And the fact that it's abstraction with the figurative so it's not abstraction. I'm just, you know, putting geometric shapes. I'm making people that you recognize are people, but why do they look like that, you know? Um, yes. But Picasso is so studied that he can get away with it. I mean, he has such a great background. He actually made hundreds of preparatory sketches for this painting. And I think you talking about the controversial elements, but also how studied Picasso was. Picasso is such or was such an amazing student of art history. And there are so many examples of this throughout his life where he is looking to specific works of art or specific painters. Uh, He would go to the Louvre all the time to look at particular works by Delacroix, for example, that he just loved. And so thinking about him trying to mix up art history a little bit in this way uh, is really kind of amazing because any sort of nude, slightly risque scene, like a scene of a woman in a brothel, for example, I'm, I'm really thinking Manet right here, yeah. uh, is that you usually kind of couch it in mythology or in some kind of more acceptable story. So in the past, you would have called these women, you know, goddesses or Venus of some sort. Right. But again, as you mentioned, specifically at the very beginning before the title got changed, he specifically said, you know, these are the this is from the bordel, the bordello of Avignon. So he was like, no, these are prostitutes. And I'm telling you right out, I'm not sugarcoating any of it. So ballsy, ballsy in every single way, for sure. Yeah. And that's something that will continue throughout his career. With this painting, you can really mark before and after when you look at the history of art. Yes. Um, and there's not very many artists that have that impact or not very many single works that it really is such a clear break. Um, And that's part of, you know, what made Picasso such a genius. 
And I feel like it doesn't matter how you feel about Picasso as a person because, you know, he was such a misogynist. So it's hard for me to like him yeah. as an individual. But I guess many people were like that. Sure. But the, you know, the influence that he's had on art, it, it's just you can't have anything but I think respect for, for what he ended up doing in so many ways. For sure. As we wrap up our discussion of the first part of Impactful Moments, we're going to dial back the clock a little bit. I personally, my art history focus was on the Renaissance and Baroque art. I live in Rome. So there's no way that I couldn't mention this artist. You know, when I was studying, there were very few women that were ever mentioned. In fact, really, I can only think of one. And that is going to be our next impactful moment. So we're going to talk about Artemisia Gentileschi. She was the daughter of an accomplished painter. So this was probably the only reason she was really allowed to partake in artistic training herself, which was quite uncommon in the 17th century when she was active. Um, you really had to have a male family member in order to be allowed in the studio to do the inner workings. But she took full advantage of that. And from about 1610 until her death in 1656, she had international clients. She went to England. She was with the court of Charles I. She was also the first female member of the Florentine Academy of Fine Arts. Members in the past include Michelangelo. Her work is just so impactful for the representation that it presents and the major historical and religious paintings that she was putting out, which at the time were sort of the apex of art history. You would really made it if you were producing that sort of work. And that legacy, you know, continues. Her work is still highly valid today. And I feel like even just in the last few years, there have been tours announced specifically of solo exhibitions of her work. So I feel like even now more than ever, she's been so lauded by the general public. Like this is one of the names of the few non-modern or contemporary women artists who people are really just beginning to understand and recognize her name. It's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that always sort of bothered me a little bit was that art historians, especially male art historians, tend to look at her work through the lens of a particular incident. She was raped by Agostino Tassi, who was another artist when she was just 17. And we know about that incident because he actually was brought to court and there was testimony about it. And so we have written records. I always thought it was sort of bizarre that her art gets viewed through the lens of, oh, she's painting a violent scene because of, you know, the rape in a way that male artists definitely are not. So she painted a lot of work, particularly with Judith and Holofernes. So Judith slicing off the head of Holofernes. Mm -hmm. Incredible scene. She uses a lot of light and dark. She was sort of in the school of Caravaggio, where there's a lot of contrast and a lot of high drama. But yeah, one of the things that always bothered me was this sort of way to use her biography to interpret the work in a way that doesn't really happen for male artists of that time period. No, I completely agree with you. I see things both ways because I totally agree that this isn't something that is used very often, uh, this biographical reading. Um, but then I also understand that there seems, uh, I mean, who knows how clear this actually really is or how truthful this is. But some historians, women and men, have said that they can see visual links between Judith in this case as looking maybe similar to the way Artemisia did. Mm. And some people also say that Holofernes looks similar to the way that Agostino Tassi did. So again, I don't know how much of that is conjecture, but there is some... 
there's some wish fulfillment that people like to ascribe to this because Tassi, as you mentioned, there was this horrible trial. Yeah. It lasted for over seven months. And it seems like from the records that uh, Artemisia was basically on trial almost as much as Tassi was because she was forced to basically undergo um, torture in order to verify that she was being a truthful witness or a truthful person that what she was saying, asserting was happening actually did happen. And they figured that if they bound her fingers so tightly that eventually if it hurt too much that she would confess that this was all a trumped up charge, which did not happen. Obviously, she stuck to her story because this seems to be this is what happened to her. Right. Uh, But even after he was convicted, he never actually had to perform any sentence. There was nothing that was done for this. So he there was this I guess, a sense of injustice, or at least one that we as historians or even just general people are carrying with it today. So I can see why we want it to be wish fulfillment. You know, whether or not it is, it's something that we want. (laughs) Certainly, if it is, that is another incredible moment in history because in art of that time, artists are not using their personal biography to inform their work. I mean, of course, you have little things here and there where you can see sly digs. You know, Michelangelo, The Last Judgment, had to get digs in here and there. But you're not seeing what this would be, which would be, okay, I'm going to take my emotion, um, my rage, I'm going to put it in into the artwork. Because she paints this scene of Judith and Holofernes many, many, many times. And it gets increasingly bloodier each and and every time. I think something that people often forget is that uh, this was a very popular scene to have in paintings at the time. You're talking about Caravaggio. Yes. You know, the Baroque was really all about getting things to be as dramatic as possible. And what is more dramatic than the scene of a guy getting his head lopped off? Like, that is extremely dramatic. So it wasn't just her that was creating this work. Caravaggio did another version, a really one that kind of established this bloody precedent. And tons of people, both before and after Artemisia Gentileschi, uh, created this kind of scene. It was a really standard art historical representation. So, yeah, it's really interesting. But hers is quite bloody. I do like it because of that, though, because she adds this element of realism. You know, so many images of Judith in the past would kind of shy away from the actual dirt of what was happening. So you'd see Judith kind of really benignly holding this severed head after the fact. (laughs) So it really was the Baroque artist that kind of came in there and said, you know, we're missing the really good part of the movie, for example. Right. So it's like, let's bring in, bring in the actual beheading. Yeah. It makes her an active participant and, you know, makes her a strong female participant in, in the painting in a way that, as you said, most male artists were not were not doing, yes, yeah, sort of daintily posing with um, with a head, you know, as one does. Yes, <laughs> of course, uh, always, every day. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I mean, even Caravaggio beforehand, his Judith, it feels like she's kind of setting herself aside and very daintily cutting off Holofernes' head. And she has this just tiny little wrinkle in her brow. Whereas Artemisia has both women, both Judith herself and her handmaiden kind of getting in there and you can see their arm muscles bulging, their hands get dirty. So you don't have that distance that so many of the other artists who came before really put between their ladies and the action. 
Yeah, and I think that's part of, you know, what resonates. Yes, she's a female artist, but she's also extremely talented and shows that there were women producing incredible art at that time. I and mean, she's just one of, of many, but she's the one that, that we know and hopefully is a gateway for people to know a little bit more about some of the other female artists who were producing work at that time. I totally agree. I'm always open for more, more work about women, more writing about women, because yes. they were there. They were out there for sure making incredible stuff. Yeah. Well, it has been great chatting with you about these four moments of art historical impact. I'm really excited to keep chatting with you over on Art Curious so we can unfold some some more moments. I'm so happy. Thank you again for asking me on. And uh, let's keep it going over on Art Curious, like you said. I love it. Thank you. So everyone, tune in and download the coming episode on Art Curious to hear part two of our conversation. I really hope you enjoyed listening to our special episode with Jennifer Dossel of the Art Curious Podcast. We had a great time unfolding some important moments in art history for you. And don't forget, the discussion will continue on August 9th on Art Curious. We'll get into everything from Marcel Duchamp's ready-made art to the impact of Frida Kahlo. So make sure you subscribe to Art Curious so that you won't miss the episode. We'll be back next Wednesday with the debut of Season 2 of the Top Artist Podcast. I'll be sitting down to chat with documentary photographer Jamel Shabazz, whose photographs of New York in the early 1980s captured a moment of innocence in the city. You won't want to miss it. Make sure you keep up with everything we have going on at Top Artist by subscribing to the podcast, following us on Instagram at Top Artist Podcast, and by signing up for our newsletter on podcast.mymodernmet.com. We hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode, and we'll see you next week.